The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves, and the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May, and then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your paces success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Welcome back team to another episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Dr. Sam Williams here. I hope your exam preparation is going well. And this week I sat down with Dr. Alison Evans, a consultant endocrinologist from Gloucester and Cheltenham Hospital to discuss a patient with acromegaly. There's a couple of topical references in this episode, particularly relating to the supply chain issues of blood bottles around the UK. And listen out for some time around the investigations and management section where Alison is only slightly drowned out by an ambulance siren. And they said recording a podcast at work would be easy. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter for a bite-sized tutorial of every episode where you can find a summary of all the pertinent learning points which are released over the two weeks before our next episode is released. Alison also has a cracking quiz the consultant topic, so listen out for that at the end of the show. But without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast, the only podcast where having a headache, sweating profusely and noticing a change in your appearance over time is pretty much standard in the life of a trainee revising for the MRCP Paces. In today's episode, we are discussing a common endocrinological topic which might appear as a relative curveball in Paces, and that is acromegaly. Joining us to navigate this treacherous topic is someone who is so sweet that over the course of a single four-month rotation, my HbA1c rose from 35 to 206. It's Dr. Alison Evans. Alison is a consultant in endocrinology and diabetes at Cheltenham and Gloucester Hospital's NHS Trust and runs the pituitary clinic in conjunction with the local neurosurgical team. And I've no doubt she will be instrumental in helping us comprehensively cover this important PACES topic. So Alison, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. And not only that, but at the end of the show, our regular feature of Quiz the Consultant returns. This is the quiz where our bosses take on a number of questions on a topic of their own choosing with the caveat that it can't be to do with medicine. So, Alison, what have you named as your specialist subject and why? I've named my favourite film, which is, of course, Top Gun. The reason I chose that is actually it was part of my career plan when I was a house officer. I saw Top Gun when I was a medical student. Always wanted to marry a pilot. So my senior registrar, when I just finished my house jobs, asked me my career plan and I said I wanted to pass my membership. I wanted to marry a pilot and I wanted to get myself a fast car. And so now I am married to a pilot, although he's retired now. Obviously, I've passed my membership. And at the time, I did buy myself a GTI. So there you are. (laughs) So three out of three ain't bad. And let's hope you can get a hundred percent record in the quiz at the end of the show but before that we're going to be discussing the topic of acromegaly so without further ado let's get into it so Alison just to start off why do you think it is that acromegaly is a relative curveball and why do you think it's such a favorite to include in paces well I think First of all, acromegaly, unless you're an endocrinologist, isn't really that common. So, for example, in Gloucestershire, we get maybe four or five new cases a year, and that's for a population of about 
650,000 people. So it's not very common, but um, what Paces likes is they like people who look a bit funny. They like people who've got a good history and quite often people with acromegaly have got a good, interesting history to tell you, which goes back over a number of years. They've quite often got a lot of co other comorbidities uh, related to that. And then obviously going on to have things like surgery and the implications post-surgery. There's a lot of things you can examine at PACES which cover quite a lot of areas which might not be specific to acromegaly, but it's a really good lead-in. Perfect. And one of the other things is that I think historically in PACES, where Station 5 used to be more of a spot diagnosis, where someone would be sat there, I think things have moved on a, a little bit from that now. And so as we'll go on to talk about, the sort of lead-in that you will get from PACES could be one of a couple of different scenarios. So I guess the next thing to discuss really would be what is the likely lead-in for a scenario where you might be faced with uh, a patient with acromegaly? Yeah, so I guess there's two ways to look at it. Probably the most common would be this gentleman has walked into your clinic, he gives a history of weight gain, headaches, sweating, whatever. Could you take a more detailed history? And quite often the clue is the visual clue. When you look at them, they 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 look like they could have acromegaly. Um, so it might be a leading just as a take a general history and you should be able to focus it towards acromegaly you, because by looking at the patient, you should have a clue about what's going on. Um, it might be somebody who presents with visual problems, with visual field loss, um, so you might be asked to assess their, their vision, their cranial nerves, that sort of thing. It might be a lead in talking to about somebody, for example, who's had recent pituitary surgery and the medications they might be on, the acute complications they might be presenting with on the acute medical take, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, perfect. So it's either most likely to be either a brand new diagnosis where you're going to be taking a history pertinent to a patient with suspected acromegaly or it's going to be something related to that or possibly a patient who's had acromegaly in the past and has now either got a complication from it or a possible complication from their treatment such as surgery so then if we move on to the actual history itself and one thing i guess we should just say is that although there are patients who have been or there are patients who have acted as patients in paces before this isn't this is something else where also the history is quite critical and could it could it be a history where they choose to insert an actor for example if someone doesn't show up as a as a late uh, as a late recruit yeah i think it could do because i mean ideally you've got somebody who's sitting there in front of you who's got you know clinical features compatible with acromegaly but it is something that i could sit there and describe myself as acromegalic with certain symptoms which should give somebody at a paces level you know I, I can drop in the right words if you like to make you think this could be acromegaly for example which you probably wouldn't expect at the end of medical school um so yes they could use an actor so if we move on then to the actual taking of the history itself so the most likely scenario is going to be a station five where you're going to have or the candidates are going to have eight minutes in total to perform a focused yeah. history focus examination and then explain to the patient their management plan before having two minutes to speak to the examiners. So if we focus in on it in that context of a station five where you'll have to take a focused history, let's start with the lead-in of a new patient with, let's say, some of the symptoms you described earlier. What are the sorts of symptoms that patients are that patients often present to you with when you see them in clinic with a diagnosis of suspected acromegaly? Yeah. So I think it's worth saying that by the time they get to see me in clinic, somebody's already thought of it and somebody's done an initial blood test. So it would be pretty uncommon that I, for example, walk into clinic or walk onto the ward and think that person's got acromegaly. It does happen. Um, so it's worth considering how patients present to the initial referrer. So I get a lot of patients coming from ophthalmology who prevent, who've presented with field loss and they've done an MRI scan, I get a surprising number of patients who have been to their dentist um, with dental problems. And the dentists have thought, I wonder if they might have acromegaly. They've gone back through to their GP and been screened. 
Um, every now and again, we'll get somebody presenting on the acute medical called take who's collapsed, who's hypopituitary at presentation. But when you look at them, they look like they've got acromegaly. So they probably had, for example, an infarct into a previously undiagnosed adenoma. Um, sometimes people go along to their GP with something else. They've gone along because they've got arthritis in their wrist. And if you get a good GP, and particularly if you get a good GP who's done an endocrine rotation when they've been training, they'll look at them and think, I wonder. So it's one of those you've got to have, you've got to think of it to diagnose it. Now, I think most of us, if you see the real classic acromegalics that you see in the movies, so Jaws from the James Bond film, or Andre the Giant in The Princess Bride, another one of my favourite films, not just because he's got acromegaly. Um, we don't see people with that sort of very advanced phenotypic presentation anymore because usually they've been picked up and diagnosed and hopefully we stop them getting to that obvious. Um, but sometimes it is just people look funny. And I had a really good case. A lady came in with her sister. She'd been to a dentist. The dentist thought she could have acromegaly. She came in with her sister and you sat them next to each other. And you, you know those classic photographs you see in books of people's hands next to each other? You would not have thought that they were related. But if you've seen her on her own, and particularly at the moment when people are wearing masks, you don't notice it. So if you're seeing somebody in clinic, ask them to take their mask off. And you think, oh, yeah, it's obvious. Put the mask back on. It's not. One of the things which I think is really critical in, in this station is demonstrating an awareness of the range of symptoms which it's possible to have with acromegaly so although the patient may have presented to you having already had a blood test what are the additional symptoms which uh, are important for PACES candidates yeah. to ask about to demonstrate a good understanding of acromegaly? Okay so headaches, sweating, sweating is pretty discriminatory um, of active disease, a lot of people will say that their hands and feet have got bigger they've had to have rings cut off I think much less nowadays than it used to be. Things like hat size, shirt collar size, glove size, unless you've got an orthopedic surgeon with acromegaly. People don't know their hat size anymore. And blokes don't tend to wear shirts with ties anymore. So, But people will notice that their hands are just bigger, their feet are bigger, and they can't explain why. Sometimes they'll describe they might be getting deaf, they might have problems, symptoms suggestive of carpal tunnel or something like that. Sometimes you'll get people with difficult to control blood pressure or diabetes. And again, quite what you've got to remember about acromegaly, there's quite often a very long lead in time from when it first starts to when people are actually formally diagnosed. And if you're, for example, a GP and you're seeing somebody every three months, you don't notice the difference. You just think people are getting older. And a classic one is when people either move GP surgeries or Granny has come over from Australia that you haven't seen for 20 years and says, you look really different. So sometimes it will just get picked up by that change in visual appearance, which most people, when you look in the mirror every day, you think, I'm just getting old. My nose is getting bigger. I'm getting hair in places I shouldn't have hair, for example. Um, so it will get picked up. It's worth asking about things like libido, about menstrual history, that sort of thing, because a lot of young men are pitching up with libido issues at the moment. I don't know if that's lockdown or anything else. We'll pick people up because they've got sleep apnea and they're snoring. It's those sort of symptoms. And a lot of people, sometimes you actually have to say, well, do you snore a lot? And usually if they come with their other half, they say yes. Whereas they're sitting there going, no, I don't. Yeah. So it, it's those sort of symptoms. You know, people don't complain about coarse skin. They don't really complain about... They will complain about sweating, but they quite often won't tell you that. They mm. won't complain that their diabetes has got a bit worse. Um, so it's it's those sort of focused symptoms. And if you can, if possible, get a history. You know, have you got photos? Have you got a photo on your on your phone from ten years ago? And what do you look like now? And then one of the things you mentioned there was about sweating being a symptom indicating disease activity so yeah. are, are there any other symptoms which the candidates should be asking about to try and demonstrate if or to try and assess if the patient has active acromegaly yeah so for example either newly diagnosed or worsening diabetes newly diagnosed hypertension or 
hypertension becoming more difficult to control. Um, quite often if they're hypercalcemic, again, they might feel thirsty, have polyuria, but they might put that down to their diabetes rather than something else. Um, but you'll, there will be some people with no symptoms at all. Um, headaches, a lot of people will get headaches. Does it necessarily correlate with the, the hormonal level or, or, if you like, degree of aggressiveness? Not necessarily. Um, in general, the younger you are with acromegaly, the more aggressive a disease process it, it tends to be. Acromegaly, usually it's not a malignant tumour, but just in terms of the hormonal production. If you're picking up acromegaly in people in their 60s and 70s, it's usually a much more indolent disease. Um, and it's quite often picked up as a coincidental when you've been testing for something else. Yeah. And a couple of the other things you mentioned there as well. And these are also things which may be the presenting complaint, as we alluded to in the lead in. You may be given a patient with known acromegaly who presents with uh, a complication. And you've already mentioned a couple of these here, but but important symptoms related to complications. So you already mentioned carpal tunnel syndrome, which would often be things like waking up with tingling hands, um, which which improves with time and, you know, shaking it off. You mentioned sleep apnea. So things like tiredness during the day, snoring, which which you mentioned as well. And they also may present with a headache. Symptoms of diabetes, which you mentioned as well. So obviously polyuria and polydipsia. And are there any other particular symptoms which would be related to complications of um, acromegaly or, or sort of associated conditions? So I guess, I mean, obviously visual problems. If you've got, you know, a bitemporal field loss, you may well present, a lot of patients do present via ophthalmology. You may present with cardiac disease because people with acromegaly are more likely to have ischemic heart disease, cardiac failure. I get symptoms from bowel polyps, that side of things. And then you can also have symptoms. So obviously acromegaly is an overactive hormone. You may also have symptoms from hormonal deficiencies of the other anterior pituitary hormones. So tiredness, dizziness, problems with weight might be related to the thyroid axis. Libido might well be related to, or infertility related to the sex hormone axis. You might be cortisol deficient. So we, you know, we've had people presented with, acutely with hyponatremia and it turns out it's all related to acromegaly. Um, so there's such a wide variety of symptoms and signs that there probably isn't one thing you can say, well, they all have this. Perfect. And I guess the other thing to say is that not all candidates should maybe ask all of these questions, but it's just because of the focused nature of the station itself. But it's just very important to try and demonstrate to the examiners that you've got an understanding of the multi-systemic yeah. impact of, of acromegaly. And obviously you yeah. should be targeting your questions towards the uh, the history of percent complaint. And then Yeah, I think I think the other thing is just worth mentioning, things like, you know, the skin tags and the acanthosis. Again you may get asked to look at somebody's skin because usually acanthosis is usually sort of up around the neck. And then as an additional part of the full history of these patients, um, what other aspects of the history are particularly important to ask about? Um, I think you should all, I mean, I know you should in any sort of medical um, history taking, but ask about family history. Um, as I said previously, acromegaly isn't particularly common. Um, uh, there are syndromes that are associated with acromegalies. Probably MEN1 is the most common one that people know about, but there are various other things like Carney complex and stuff, which I don't think you would be expected to know about in any detail whatsoever in PACES, but I think it's the, the awareness that sometimes these things do run in families. So taking a history saying, has anybody else in the family got acromegaly? Has anybody else in the family got any other endocrine conditions? Um, and that might be other pituitary conditions. It might be parathyroid disease. It might be some of the gut hormones. Um, and certainly in, what we do is if we somebody, see somebody with acromegaly and there's any family history or they're young, we'll go on to do genetic screening for, for those sort of things. And it just gives you a, a flavour. Perfect. And then I guess just one thing which is always important to ask about as well is just um, a, a quick social history. So particularly with just with regard to um, is it affecting their function is it affecting their activities of daily living but again you've got a very focused history so just to yeah. emphasize you're gonna you're gonna try and 
cram that in somewhere to demonstrate you've got a holistic approach to these patients. Yeah, and I think it's also worth accepting because they quite often have quite a long um, work up towards the diagnosis. They've had it for a long time. Quite often it's not affecting their ADLs as much as you might expect because it's been coming on very gradually. Quite often they actually accommodate to their level of disability without realising it. And sometimes it's only once they've had treatment we've got all my levels back to normal they sort of come back and say you know what I feel much better I didn't realize I didn't feel well beforehand. Perfect that segues us nicely into the focused examination part of the station so you will have asked about the presenting complaint you will have asked about the associated symptoms potentially related to complications and again your examination should be focused towards whatever their history of presenting complaint is so just for the sake of starting broadly and uh, covering all our bases we're going to proceed through a conventional sort of systematic examination of a of a general medical patient so apart from the fact that when when you enter the room that's your sort of end of the bedogram when you see a patient and as you've already said there may be completely obvious signs of acromegaly when you enter so we're putting that to one side because that may be obvious from the point that you enter the room so we're going to move straight on to the hands and and what are the most common things that you, you would tend to find in the hands of these patients so i think the first thing that you'll find is that their hands just look really big and coarse now you have to take that into the context of who the patient is so if they're a 40 year old bricklayer they're going to have you know who's six foot tall anyway they're going to have big coarse hands but for example if I came into clinic and as you know I'm not six foot tall and I'm not a bricklayer um, they just have really thick coarse hands the bones don't get longer because the bones can't elongate anymore but they sort of get bigger and thicker the skin gets bigger and thicker and when you look at them it's it's almost one of those things you've got to have seen it a few times before you but you sometimes you just look at somebody's hands and they just look big and coarse and you thought that doesn't look like a lady who works as a secretary is what her hand should look like even though she's got a beautiful manicure they're just big and coarse and chunky the skin is quite often very thick Um, sometimes it's a bit cracked they might be sweaty. It's always difficult when you're seeing somebody for the first time in clinic because they're always a bit nervous. So they're always a bit sweaty, but you just sort of get the impression. You know, you can look for signs, clinical signs for, for carpal tunnel. They may have had surgery previously. They may have some muscle wasting. You do all the usual tapping on their wrist and so on um, to see if you've got symptoms. Sometimes they'll have joint problems. There's a much higher instance of arthritis. So they may just be stiff and painful. They're not swollen as you would get with an inflammatory arthritis. Yeah. And one patient who I recall seeing who who was signposted to me by one of the registrars on an elderly care ward, actually, I went to shake his hand and I almost, it almost felt like I was shaking hands with sort of the Michelin man. They were just sort of quite, the handshake was quite engulfing almost, almost the whole hand sort of wrapped around my hand. They almost feel when you sort of, the skin feels a bit sort of doughy. It's just sort of, just like there's a lot of, tissue there quite hard to verbalize it but it's it's yeah they just feel big and thick and heavy and then continuing with our systemic examination um so it would be beneficial for the candidates to ask for a blood pressure at that point as that sort of convention moving up from the hands yeah so you're going to want to check their pulse ask for a blood pressure so you know this sort of part of the cardiovascular assessment just so you're making it obvious that you're thinking they could have cardiovascular disease um then sort of Moving up the body, I guess the next place you get to is the face and you'll be looking at the sort of classic facial features that you get with acromegaly. So very prominent superorbital ridges, even in women. So sort of this sort of this bit here just looks really bulky. Prognathism is just when the jaw just gets big and tends to come forward. And quite often you'll get uh, interdental spacing. Um, so they may describe that. The nose quite often just looks big and coarse this sort of area here the nasal label folds might be more prominent they may have macroglossia they won't tell you I've got macroglossia but they they may say that their speech feels a bit thick because their tongue feels too big that sort of thing and obviously um, you're going to be looking formally for signs of a bitemoral temporal hemianopia they don't all have it um, they can they sometimes also have all sorts of funny visual field defects, but absolutely you should be doing 
proper visual fields, you should be doing fundoscopy. Um, it's one of those things you say, I'd like to do fundoscopy, and they'll say, don't worry, or they'll say, off you go then. As you sort of move down, you're going to want to assess for a goiter, and then you're going to be doing sort of more standard assessments, looking for cardiac enlargement, cardiac problems, that sort of thing. Um, and again, sort of general neurological assessment sort of, of the legs as well. They might have some peripheral edema. Um, so it, that's the more sort of general things which aren't necessarily specific to acromegaly. No, but they are they are indicative of um, you know yes. potential complications as as we've already discussed. And so the the important thing I guess we would say with this is that you know you're not going to have a lot of time to examine these patients particularly. So it's going to be really critical that the candidates focus the examination towards the presenter complaint and then essentially do enough examination to convince the examiners they have a, a strong understanding of the types of associated conditions with acromegaly. Yeah, yeah and I, I think it's also reasonable that, for example, if you're doing proper visual fields, that's going to take you a little bit of time to do. You, you know, if you say something like, I think this patient has acromegaly, so I'd also like to do a full cardiovascular assessment, examine peripheral edema. And sometimes they'll say, that's fine, thank you very much, because it's clear that you know what you're doing. Other times they'll say, please carry on so it, it it will just depend on the individual examiners and the scenario they're, they're putting to you but it, always listen to the examiner so if they say examine one thing or you can see this patient sitting in front of you what is the one thing you'd like to examine and you might say visual fields but you're not going to say blood pressure it's it's sort of being able to target what you're doing in a short period of time which is what in real terms we have to do in clinic yeah definitely what's the most high yield thing to examine for each individual patient and then one thing just to add in which i think you, you'd already mentioned earlier but just as part of it would be looking for acanthosis nigricans in the neck as yeah. well as as you mentioned before perfect so there's your focused history and focused examination for a patient with acromegaly which is most likely to be in a station five after the break, we are going to be discussing how to present the patient back to your examiner with your findings. And we're going to be talking through how to investigate and manage these patients. It's that time of the show where we plug our sponsors, PassTest.com. Over at PassTest.com slash Paces, they have an exemplar station five featuring a patient with acromegaly. So once you've finished listening to this pod, you can sign up, head over there and view a rehearsed example of how to put all of Dr. Evans' great advice into practice. And hopefully it will mean you too can absolutely smash a station five on acromegaly. That's all for now. So let's rejoin my chat with consultant endocrinologist, Dr. Alison Evans. Welcome back. And we have been discussing acromegaly with... Dr. Alison Evans, a consultant in endocrinology and diabetes at Gloucester Hospitals. And we talked through the focused history and focused examination. And now we're going to be moving on to your presentation and the investigation and management of these patients. So when we talked earlier about possible differential diagnosis of this condition, it is a pretty unique condition. And realistically, there's not going to be a huge amount left in your locker to say to your examiner, this is the likely differential diagnosis because it's it's quite an isolated differential on its own, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I think I think for most patients, particularly the sort that you're seeing in paces, I think it, it's almost going to be a done deal as this is what the diagnosis is. So it's more, you know, you, are you picking up the diagnosis and are you asking the relevant questions rather than are you putting out a general sort of net to try and catch a whole load of different diagnoses that could be related? And maybe the only thing which might win you sort of slightly more marks from the examiner would be mentioning the presence or absence of any complications related to that if it's a new presentation. And then the other thing would be just to mention any markers of active disease activity, which you may not find on examination if it's an actor. But again, these are the sorts of things to flesh out your presentation, which would make the examiners think, right, this person's got a real grasp of, of this condition. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's being able to talk around it and know the implications of it rather than... So if you went and said, this patient's got acromegaly, you're correct. But if you went and said, this patient's got acromegaly with evidence of hypertension, diabetes, visual compromise, 
and symptoms suggested of cardiac disease, you're getting more points as you go along. Both answers are correct, but it's it's the depth of knowledge that you're you're showing. Yeah, so definitely furnish those extra details as you elicit them from the patient in the station. So then moving on from our uh, presentation, the examiner is most likely going to ask you something about your investigations. So um, as you've said already, the investigations more than likely are going to be on an outpatient basis. So what is the diagnostic test for acromegaly? Okay, so if somebody is referred into endocrine clinic and the GP says, I think they might have acromegaly, they're not going to get through the door until they've had an IGF-1 test, which is a it's a standard blood test can be done by at GP surgeries. You don't have to fast for it. So that is the, if you like, the quick and dirty screening test. If your IGF-1 is normal, you do not have acromegaly. So I nobody will get into my clinic without having an IGF-1 checked. And then what I tend to say to the GPs, if you're going to do an IGF-1, you might as well do a full pituitary profile whilst you're there, particularly when we haven't got very many blood bottles floating around at the moment. Um, so you would do the IGF-1, you do a 9am cortisol, you don't have to fast for that. Thyroid profile, so really important you get a free T4 as well as a TSH, because with pituitary disease, you may have a normal TSH because you can't mount an appropriate response and still be hypothyroid. Prolactin, because these tumours quite often will co-secrete prolactin. Um, obviously, if you're a man, testosterone, you don't worry, need to worry too much if they're a woman, um, but check a testosterone as well, um, along with an LH and FSH. Um, so when they get referred into clinic, I've got a full pituitary profile. I could think, well, they've got an elevated IGF-1. I think they've got acromegaly. The rest of the hormones are normal or actually, you know what, they're deficient in various other pituitary hormones. So we're going to need to do something about sorting those out whilst we're working up the diagnosis of acromegaly. And then this might come into usually one of the things we talk about afterwards is common examiner questions. But why is it that we don't measure growth hormone directly in these patients? So the anterior pituitary produces growth hormone in pulses. Growth hormone makes your liver produce IGF-1. So there will be times of the day, potentially, even when you've got acromegaly, that your growth hormone levels may be low or normal. IGF-1 is produced continuously. So if you have acromegaly, that one will be up the whole time. Um, so whilst we use growth hormone for dynamic testing, we wouldn't use it as a screening test because a normal level might not be normal the rest of the day. And so are there any additional blood tests that we should be doing in these patients as a matter of routine that the candidates should be mentioning in their investigations presentation? Yeah. Um, so I would do renal function just because some of these patients may have cardiovascular disease and may have reduced renal function. I'd do an HbA1c if they haven't had one checked, see if they've got diabetes. And I would always check a calcium. Um, you can get hypercalcemic with acromegaly per se, but obviously you have to consider um, that they could have parathyroid adenomas as part of an MEM process, something like that. So I would always check calcium as well on a basic blood screen. Um, and when you're doing bloods, we all do full blood count and LFTs, but I think they're less justifiable solely as part of an acromegaly workup, if you see what I mean. Yeah, fair enough. And then... Things related to the complications. So we've already talked through the full hormone profile, but things such as an HbA1c and a lipid profile, are these things that you routinely yep. do in clinic as well? Uh, usually, yes. Um, and certainly by the time they get to see me in, cl in clinic, usually they've been done by GPs, but we do occasionally pick these people up as inpatients by coincidence. Um, so, yeah, I think they should be done as part of the workup. And again, if you're you know in your patient's exam, checking blood pressure, asking to do a capillary blood glucose. They'll probably say you don't need to, but it's it's worth mentioning because, again, it's showing that you're thinking about um, associated problems. Perfect. And then just taking a step back, we sort of skipped one of the uh, sections which we normally put at this part of the presentation, which is just things to do at the bedside, which you mentioned was yep. uh, just a quick BM, which, uh, as you said, could be... Uh, 
could be high indicative of um, coexistent diabetes. And we already, we'd already talked about taking a blood pressure at the bedside during our examination. But um, what other tests are important which, are, which can be done easily at the bedside? So you might want to do oxygen saturations. You want, might, if you know how to do it, do a quick um, sleep apnea score. That would be very easy to do. You might want to do an ECG. Um, I wouldn't suggest doing a, doing a chest X-ray at that point, but just sort of the, 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 the basic stuff that we do. Yeah. So uh, yeah, an Epworth sleep in a score would be helpful. And then an ECG, particularly looking probably for something such as um, left ventricular hypertrophy, which can be associated with acromegaly. And then moving yep. on to the moving on to the imaging, this is one of the key investigations, which you've already mentioned. You're often sometimes finding you're getting the imaging before you're diagnosing the patient. Yeah. So in general terms, if a patient, you wouldn't be imaging before you've got some sort of biochemical evidence. So if a patient's referred into an endocrine outpatient clinic, you'd have got certainly an IGF-1 and a pituitary profile before you consider imaging. Um, and what I tend to do is if I've got somebody in clinic who's got a raised IGF-1, a really good history, and you're just looking at them, then I will book them up for an MRI pituitary. MRIs are much better at imaging pituitary than CT scanning. Um, and then at the same time, organise um, for uh, some dynamic endocrine tests, a three-hour glucose tolerance test for acromegaly. So I would sort of get those booked up at the same time. I wouldn't necessarily get the three-hour GTT and then book an MRI scan. Now, obviously, as you've just said, some patients come to us already having had a scan, um, in which case, if they've had a CT scan, we would MRI. Um, if they're able to have an MRI, if they've had a PET scan, again, we would look at more dedicated pituitary imaging um, where, where possible rather than just CTing. Although these days, some of the CTs are pretty good. And certainly if you've got patients with pacemakers and spinal pumps and things like that, you can't MRI them. Um, so a good CT is pretty good these days, but we'll be looking at getting MRI scanning. And I guess the urgency of that will depend a little bit on the clinical scenario. So if you've got somebody who's come into hospital, who's collapsed, hyponatremic, you're going to be getting urgent scanning done anyway. If I see somebody in clinic and they've got visual field loss, you'd get an urgent outpatient MRI scan. If they've just got a raised IGF-1, there's no other worrying clinical features other than they've got acromegaly then we'll we'll have a routine scan and that will be done within a few weeks in general terms but the, the sort of how you prioritize it that the key thing on getting something done really urgently is if there's any sign of visual compromise um, that needs to be done sooner rather than later perfect and then there's a few other sort of tests which should be done particularly related to the complications and obviously that depends on the nature of symptoms if, if they've reported some to you during your history taking but obviously if they're reporting symptoms of heart failure then you're going to want to yeah. request an echo um, yeah in fact we probably will we will echo people with acromegaly um you because they're usually going for surgery and we will usually get a pre-op echo um just because they can have significant element a degree of lv failure with very little in the way of symptoms sometimes and obviously having pituitary surgery is a fairly prolonged operation with a long anesthetic so you, you want to know exactly where you are from a cardiac point of view so i would say an echocardiogram before surgical management unless they're going to surgery very urgently because they've got visual field compromise um, would be very reasonable great and then additional things would be if they're reporting symptoms suggestive of sleep apnea, then you're going to want to perform a full sleep study, which would probably be a referral to the to the respiratory team. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think it's um, echo, I would say, is pretty much part of the basic workup these days. Anything else will be sort of focused in line with their presenting issues for, as an individual patient. Perfect. And then. If they're reporting symptoms suggestive of carpal tunnel, then you might want to do some nerve conduction studies. But again, I think you're exactly right. You're going to be, everything else is going to be quite peripheral. But again, it depends on the way that they're presented to you in that station. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also if you've got somebody new with acromegaly, having carpal tunnel syndrome might be inconvenient, but it's not sight-threatening, for example. So the, 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 and quite often if you can actually cure their acromegaly, 
biochemically, then the carpal tunnel syndrome may resolve. So I think the important things to do as a, as a baseline are obviously the IGF-1, full pituitary profile, MRI scan and a three-hour glucose tolerance test. You wouldn't take somebody to surgery just with a raised IGF-1 unless they were presenting with an acute visual field loss or something like that. You'd want a full biochemical baseline before you went through to further management. So then moving on to our management of these patients, obviously we've talked about the potential cardiovascular risk associated with acromegaly. So you're going to be, first of all, educating the patient about the condition, trying to optimize their cardiovascular health. Obviously you're going to advise them to stop smoking if they smoke, optimize their alcohol consumption, and then manage the additional comorbidities such as hypertension and diabetes. But in terms of the definitive management of acromegaly, what is the strategy that you use in your clinic yeah. in terms of definitive management? Yeah. So if you have somebody who's formally diagnosed, they've definitely got acromegaly biochemically and they've got radiological abnormalities or pituitary imaging, then the default setting is surgical management. So essentially, along with Cushing's, for example, um, if you've got a functionally overactive pituitary tumour, the first line is going to be surgical management unless there's a reason not to. And obviously, that's going to depend on individual patients, frailty, other comorbidities and so on. But the default is they will be having usually transphenoidal surgery unless there's a reason not to. Um, now, sometimes in patients who've got lots of symptoms, lots of other comorbidities, or they're just very biochemically active, we may medically manage them to try and improve things before they head for surgery. Um, but the default would be usually surgery is first line and we would reserve medical management generally for people who we've been unable to achieve a full biochemical cure with surgical management. Right. So that segues us nicely into medical management for acromegaly. And so there's a few drugs. And for me, when I was doing my revision, these are all sort of drugs which were sort of tacked on the end of acromegaly. And I never really understood yep. how they were used in the context of uh, a patient who's either been treated surgically or maybe hasn't been treated at all yet. So um, I wonder if you could just run through the, the, the types yep. of drugs which are used in, in patients with acromegaly. Yeah, so essentially there's three main groups of drugs. You've got dopamine agonists like bromocryptin or cabergoline, which most people are probably more familiar with in the context of prolactinomas. Um, but as I said earlier, quite often um, these tumours will co-secrete prolactin. And we can use those, if you like, to medically take the edge off things. They're not going to get you from an IGF-1 of 100 down to an IGF-1 of 10, but they might just help improve things. And the time that I tend to use these is in people who, for example, may have had surgery or may have had radiotherapy sometimes that you're just waiting for that to kick in. Or some of the elderly, frail patients who don't want an operation, but would just want to take the edge off the hormone levels. I've never seen them get things back to normal, but they're a tablet, which, you know, some, a lot of people prefer. Um, the somatostatin analogues, octreotide, lanreotide, somatulin are injectables. We will sometimes use them pre-op, particularly in patients who are quite comorbid, just whilst we're trying to improve other things, for example, diabetes, cardiovascular status and so on. Um, or we will use them in patients who've had pituitary surgery, um, but it's not got a biochemical cure so for example if people have had a big tumor which they've been able to debulk but not remove completely because it's wrapped around the crossed artery or whatever we'll, we'll use um, somatostatin analogs to bring the levels back to normal sometimes if we've had patients who've had surgery and or radiotherapy so radiotherapy particularly doesn't work straight away it can take two or three years to have a full effect you, or you, you might use a stomatostatin analogue to bring the hormone levels down whilst the radiotherapy is working. And then as time goes on, you sort of gradually pull back on the dose and hopefully you can then stop it. Pegvisimol is a growth hormone agonist that I've never used. It's only really done in tertiary centres and is really reserved for people who you've tried everything else and they've still got 
significant biochemically active acromegaly. Um, and you'll, you know, so quite often with these patients, even if we don't achieve a biochemical cure, if you can get the, the IGF-1, the growth hormone, lower than it was, it's still better in the long run. It's a bit like with people with diabetes. Even if you don't achieve perfect sugars, a sugar level of 10 is better than a sugar level of 20. Um, so they can be quite a complicated group of patients to manage. If you're talking about pituitary surgery, if they've got small adenomas, so sort of less than a centimetre, we've got a reasonable chance of achieving biochemical cure. But the bigger ones, we quite often don't. And even when on, you know, first look post-op, they think they've got everything out. Quite often we find there's little bits left in, in sort of tucked behind arteries in funny little corners you just can't get to. So essentially the aim is to get your growth hormone levels back to normal if you can't, if you can't get them normal as good as you can. One of the, one of the things I wanted to ask was other patients who at surgery, they know that they are, they have some remnants left. Are they at risk of recurrent disease? Any patient who's had pituitary surgery for, for a tumour, even if the surgeons feel they've had complete resection at the time and levels go back to normal there's always a chance it can recur so you know any patient who's had acromegaly they're under follow-up for life you never get rid of us if you like there's a group of patients that they know when they go in they're not going to be able to achieve a biochemical cure just because of where the the tumor is you know so we've got surgical options we've got options of either standard regular therapy or stereotactic surgery which they do for us down at bristol but if the tumour is very close to the optic chiasm or very close to the big blood vessels, it's not safe to give radiotherapy or to reoperate. So sometimes you just have to accept that there will be, you know, a degree of residual tumour. Now, sometimes pituitary tumours, when you operate, if you debulk them, sometimes it's almost like they just say, that's it, OK, fine, I've had enough, I'm not going to play anymore. But other ones, you think you've got a lot of it out and they're just, there's little bits here and there. And they just grumble and grumble and grumble. And so even though you look at a post-op MRI and they've had a really good result and you really can't see anything anywhere, sometimes there are little residual bits. The other thing that we've just, I say, started doing locally, we're not, um, you can do what's called a methionine PET scan. Um, they only do those in Cambridge. And those are very specific at identifying residual areas of overactivity in the sort of the general area of the pituitary, because quite often there's bits around in the cover and the sinus and so on. So I've had a couple of patients who've had those done, which have picked up areas that you don't see on conventional imaging. So if you really want some brownie points, mention methionine PET, um, but you're not going to get it done in your local centre unless you work in Cambridge. So it's, it's one of those, sometimes you know you're not going to be able to cure the patient, but you're trying to optimise things. Perfect. And then we've covered a lot of the actual common examiner questions because after your investigations and management, there's a very short amount of time in which to discuss uh, anything additional. But one of the questions which I found that comes up quite often is related to pituitary surgery and the complications yeah. after that. So what have you found in your experience have, have been the most common complications after these patients have had their pituitary surgery? Yeah. So when we're seeing people in our joint clinic and we're counselling about the surgical complications, we talk about the acute complications, which would be because they're going in through, you know, through the base of the brain, um, through the meninges, wherever you make a hole, there's a risk of CSF leaks, of fluid coming out, which means there's a risk of infection getting in, so meningitis. So CSF leak and meningitis. Um, there's always the risk of in, sort of immediate post-operative hemorrhage. Um, there's the risk of, particularly if you've got tumours that are close to the optic apparatus, the risk of acute visual problems. Sometimes if the optic chasm has been very stretched and then it sort of sags down immediately post-op, the blood vessels don't cope with that very well. So you can get acute optic ischemia post-op. Obviously, there's the risk of transient hypopituitarism in the immediate post-op period um, and transient diabetes insipidus. Usually, those both of those quite often happen in the very first sort of day or two post-op, and the neurosurgeons are very good at monitoring for that. Um, but then once the patients go home, then they'll have follow-up from the neurosurgeons with bloods in a couple of weeks, and then we'll see them back 
and we'll do a full pituitary profile. Um, so patients may end up going home on a full sort of battery of pituitary replacements, so hydrocortisone, thyroxine, desmopressin. Um, they may not, um, but they, they then get reassessed fairly soon postoperatively. And then as a minimum lifelong, we would be checking these things out on an annual basis. And that will be somebody who's on quite a long reign post-op. Um, so you've got the immediate post-op issues and then you've got the long-term issues of hypopituitarism. And that's managing steroid replacement, thyroid replacement, diabetes insipidus, which would be the same for any endocrine patient with deficiency that's not specific to acromegaly. And then you've got you've then got the, the monitoring for could the acromegaly come back? So that will be biochemical monitoring and repeat imaging and the interval on repeat imaging depends on each individual patient. So, and, and I guess that would be if there's a greater suspicion that they may have remnants, you'd image them yeah. more frequently. Yeah. So the patients will all have a post-op MRI about maybe three or four months once the sort of the swelling and general post-op reaction is settled. Um, and then usually it will be an annual MRI for a couple of years and then maybe reducing the frequency, but it would depend on the biochemical activity, um, the radiological findings. If they've had a really good radiological you know, results postoperatively and the IGF-1 is very normal, we may just monitor with an IGF-1. This, it, this is where it gets very, very patient specific. Um, and I guess the other things we'll monitor for post-op more generally would be things like diabetes, heart failure, because even if you've had your acromegaly cured, you'll have maybe had 10 years of growth hormone excess. So as you get older, you're going to be more likely to run into problems with heart failure. Um, you're more at risk of things like colonic polyps and pushing it out a bit, malignancy. So these patients would have um, colonoscopy done periodically as well. And then, you know, just the general blood pressure, diabetes, lipids, all that side of things, management will, will get done at the same time in parallel. Fantastic. So I think that is pretty much everything you would need to know in a station of a patient who's presented with suspected acromegaly. So we're going to be back with Quiz the Consultant in just a second. Welcome to Quiz the Consultant. This is the quiz where our bosses take on a 10-question quick-fire quiz on a specialist subject of their choosing with a proviso that it can't be to do with medicine. So, Alison, just to recap, what have you named as your specialist subject? Top Gun. And this is the Top Gun, the 1986 iconic classic movie. Legendary. And you were absolutely incredulous when I was emailing you about arranging this recording that I actually hadn't seen it. I was more disappointed that somebody who'd actually worked on my team had not seen Top Gun and his past paces. I just find that slightly unusual and very, very sad and worrying. <laughs> well, pleasingly, I've been able to watch it since in the research and writing for this quiz. Did you manage to revisit the movie uh, by watching it again? Or do you think you know it well enough already to tackle these questions? I'll tell you once you've asked me the questions. I haven't seen it again since you asked me to do this because I've been on leave and my husband will not let me watch Top Gun with him in the house anymore. Amazing. So I have to say, I think this film was absolutely iconic and I have now, in retrospect, many years of regret of having this um, having this huge gaping gap in my cinematic knowledge. So it is all thanks to you that I had to write this quiz. Excellent. So... so this is how we play. It's a 10 question mm -hmm. quiz. Yeah. I'll give you a chance to get the answer for two points without multiple choice options. But for every question, there are multiple choice options for which you will take one point. So there's a maximum of 20 points up for grabs. Okay. So 10 questions on the 1986 film Top Gun. Are you ready? I am, I think. So question number one. What song plays during the opening credits of the film? Oh, now that's a very good question because I don't remember that one. Um, is that Highway to the Danger Zone? It is. I'll give it to you. It's Danger Zone by. That's fine, thank you. Yeah, by Kenny Loggins. Okay. Give you that. Who also it... did Footloose. 
Do I get a point for that? No, I, I just wish we could do bonus points, but they're just not possible. Question number two. Tom yep. Cruise plays the leading man who has the call sign of Maverick within Top Gun. But what is his real name? Lieutenant Pete Mitchell. Oh, and that's a strong, confident answer for two points. And it's Lieutenant North Lieutenant because he's American. Brilliant. Question number three. Who directed the film? Somebody Cameron. Would you like the multiple choice options? Go on then. Option one is Tony Scott. Quentin Tarantino. Oh, it's, oh, it was this. Yeah, no, it's Tony Scott. <laughs> it's, it's when I knew because it's Ridley Scott's brother. Yep. I was thinking of James Cameron who did um, Titanic. Don't worry. Yeah, correct. Just the Sorry. one point, though. Okay. Just the one point. No, I get an extra one for, for footloose, though. <laughs> Question number four. At the start of the film, Maverick and Goose get into trouble whilst airborne. But what do they do? What do you mean by getting into trouble? Do you mean when they go inverted with the mic? Do you call that getting into trouble? Um... <laughs> Or do you leave? What do you mean when they leave their wingman? It depends what you mean by trouble, I'm afraid. Well, okay. or they do a fly past of the of the flight tower on the aeroplane on their boat. Okay, would you like the multiple choice options? <laughs> because they well, go on. We get they get into trouble multiple times during the film, but I'm talking about the, the very first scene. The very well, they they do a fly past of the control tower on the boat. Okay, that's not the that's not the answer I've got on the card. Right. But we might What's have to. The we might have to do a video assistant referee on that one. But the, what I've got is they refuse to land when they were low on fuel because their chum is flying around and he is having some. Because Coog has lost it. Yeah, he's sort of had a panic attack. Yeah, that's what they got into trouble for. But they did oh, also fair. get into trouble for the fly past. Oh, fair oh. cop. No, that's. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Question. That's all right. Question number five. This is a complete the quote question. Uh, this is a complete the quote that is said to Maverick during the film by one of his bosses. Son, your blank is writing checks your body can't cash. Ego. Correct, for two points. Question number six. What is the call sign of Maverick's rival pilot who he often bickers with and competes with for the Iceland. reputation of best pilot in Top Gun. Iceman. Iceman's correct for two points. Cold as ice. Question number seven. Goose's wife comes to visit and he plays her a song on the piano in a bar. What great song? Balls of it was Great Balls of Fire for another two points. Question number eight. Maverick and Goose crash in the sea after they enter a dangerous series of tailspins. But what word does Maverick use to describe this manoeuvre during the flight? Or I should say, what phrase does he use to describe it? They went through the jet wash. Yeah, correct. For two points. Question number nine. At the yeah. end of the film, after Maverick is speaking to his bosses, they say he's been offered any avenue of career he wants. But what does he yeah. say he wants to do? He wants to go back to Top Gun to be an instructor. Correct. For two points. This is ironic. My husband's now an instructor at Prize. <laughs> Brilliant. He's not on cruise, by the way. <laughs> this is question number 10. What song do Maverick and Charlie discuss at her house? Hmm. You can take the multiple choice options. I'll take the multiple choice. Okay. Is it Stand By Me? This is a man's world. Sitting on the dock of the bay. Sitting on the dock of the bay. It's correct. And that's one point, which leaves you with a respectable 16 points out of 20. Took the took the multiple choice options appropriately, I would say. So that only leaves us to pay huge thanks to Dr. Alison Evans with a very respectable score of 16 out of 20. And not only that, she has provided us with a huge abundance of facts about acromegaly and the best way that we can approach that in our MRCP paces. So Dr. Alison Evans, thank you so much for joining us today on the Pre-Paces podcast. You're welcome. Guys, we're at the end of another episode of the Pre-Paces podcast. So, you know, this is the part where we always say, if you really enjoy the show, 
please feel free to like, comment, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch, you can do that on Twitter. It's at Prepaces Podcast. And for every episode, we tweet out a mini tutorial of all the personal learning points from our episodes. If you want to get in touch by email, it's prepacespodcast at gmail.com. But for now, we are just about out of time. So we will see you next time on the Prepaces Podcast.